There is a rhythm to the church year. I know parts of it. There are finer nuances that I've somehow missed in my education growing up. And part of it is that there's a four-year cycle around the celebration of Advent. And each uh, of the four years will focus on whatever those candles stand for. And I don't think faith is in there. So hope and love must be joy and peace, right? Yeah, so they kind of cycle through every four years the focus on them. This year, as you've seen and you heard during our worship time, the focus is love. So I thought I would arrange our lessons during Advent around the theme of love. And I would start with this theme Loving the difficult people. Um, What the Christian narrative says is that when you awaken to the Spirit of God within you, the image of God that is within you, when you experience this salvation experience where you see what you had not seen, experience what you had not experienced, Something that is inside of you begins to blossom and grow. When this thing really takes hold inside of you, our text says, you will love the light, the way and the truth and the life. You will love the spiritual. You will love God. And that will manifest in something transformative in you so that you don't just be the, become the recipient of love, you become the conduit of love. So you will consequently, as a result of this experience, not only be love and be loved, you will love and you will love your neighbor. And this thing is so transformative and goes so deeply within you that you will find yourself doing the unthinkable. You will even love your adversary. You will love your enemy. So we're going to begin there as we think about love during Advent, loving the difficult people, and we all have them in our lives. Now, as followers of Jesus, we've been given some very specific insights in how it is that we love the difficult people in our lives, insights into the healing power of kindness insights into discerning the balance that is necessary in love, because sometimes love is lovingly confrontational. Sometimes love has to push against injustice or wrong, and sometimes love has to be patient and tolerant and gracious and forgiving. And so we've been given insights into how one goes about discerning when do we do which. Insights that enjoin us to find within ourselves a reserve that so many times we don't even realize is there. Because the divine light is in each one of us, which capacitates us to love the difficult, to do the things that we thought impossible. So we've been given these insights. The life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, point us toward the experience of interior transformation. Our own interior lives are changed, and that begins to transform how we relate to the people and even the difficult people in our families, at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, with our spiritual community. And all these areas of life, uh, well, for your life as well as mine, all of those different areas in which you navigate your days, all those areas are populated with difficult people. They're all there. Sometimes we ourselves are the difficult people in the midst of this. 
Well, if you've been here at NRCC for any length of time, I hope you've heard of this book. It's something that I like to come back to in my own life on a regular basis. Uh, it is the book Let Go by Francois Fenelon. I found it a few years ago, and about every couple of years I pick it up. It's uh, arranged into uh, 28 very short chapters, you know, like uh, four or five paragraphs long. And I put it by my bedstand, and I will read one a night, and I will do that over the course of four weeks. And I, you know, haven't, I've done this for several cycles now. I haven't got bored with it yet. So it's something to uh, put into perhaps your rhythm every couple of years. Fenelon was a bishop and a writer in the late 1600s, in the early 1700s. He wrote many, many letters of spiritual instruction that have lasted, been preserved to today. And this little book is a collection of one particular correspondence that he had with a member of the court of Louis XIV. And so it has been preserved down through these centuries. And at the time of Louis XIV, the court life was particularly given to intemperance, was particularly given to excess. And so it was very difficult to live the spiritual life in a context that did not honor many of the spiritual foundations. So Fenelon wrote to a spiritual friend to mentor him or to mentor her, we don't know which one it was, uh, on this very difficult way of being on the spiritual journey. So this morning, I'm going to read one of those letters. It'll be letter number 24, and I'm going to read it and I'll sandwich it with some remarks in between. Then we'll have a minute or two to reflect at the end, and I'll ask you what you're thinking, how does this affect your soul? So I would, have been encouraging you, I, would be, I would encourage you to be thinking, how does this letter affect how I relate to my spouse, perhaps, or the guy at work that is so difficult, or my in-laws, or the people that I just went through Thanksgiving with that I still have that little bit of tension with, or those kinds of things. So, let's read it through, and then we'll read it again once later. Only imperfection is intolerate of imperfection. It seems to me that you need to be a little more big-hearted about the imperfection of other people. I know you can't help but see these imperfections when they come right before your eyes, and neither can you prevent involuntary opinions about others from popping into your mind. And nobody will deny that the imperfections of others cause us a lot of inconvenience. You could strengthen that word, perhaps, and say pain. But it will be enough if you are willing to be patient with imperfections, whether they be serious or not so serious. Do not allow yourself to turn away from people because of their imperfections. If there is one mark of perfection, it is simply that it can tolerate the imperfections of others. It is able to adjust. Sometimes we find the most surprising faults in otherwise good people, but we must not be surprised. It is best to let these faults alone and let God deal with them. If we deal with them, we will end up pulling up the wheat with the tares. I have found that God leaves, even in the most spiritual people, certain weaknesses which seem to be entirely out of place. This is true of all of us, and all of us need to be quick to recognize our own imperfection, letting God deal with them. As for you, labor to be patient with the weaknesses of others. You know from experience how bitterly it hurts to be corrected. So work hard to make it less bitter for others. I'm not saying that you correct other people too much. In fact, that's not your problem. Your problem is that you become cool when you discover faults in other people. And you tend to quit associating with them. So you need to deal with that problem. 
Now, after all that, I ask you more than ever to not spare me if I need correction. Even if you mention a fault which isn't really there, there will be no harm done. If I find that your correction wounds me, then my irritability simply shows that you have touched a sore spot in my life. But if there is no irritability and resentment, then at least you will have done me the excellent kindness of testing my ability to be humble and in keeping me accustomed to reproof. Since I occupy a position of responsibility in the church, I think I am more responsible to be humble even than others are. God demands that I be dead to everything. I need this just as you do. And I trust that our mutual need will be the means of cementing rather than weakening our attachment in the Lord. From Corinthians, Paul writes this, If you only look on the outside of a person, you might well miss the brightness. As we awaken to God, we all carry a precious light around inside of us. But we carry it in the unadorned clay pots of very ordinary lives. What struck me in preparing for today is how these ancient texts, one from 1900 years ago, one from 300 years ago, still speaks to the way that we live our lives today. Our spiritual path tells us that there is a great treasure inside each one of us. It tells us that under the surface of our own lives and under the surface of other people's lives and under the surface of the imperfections that characterize both, the flaws and the shortcomings, the irritating parts, underneath that, is the very image of God. It is value beyond compare. The zenith of God's creation, Psalm 8 says. Now many people will assent to those words and say them with their mouths, but sometimes we don't believe them at the very deep parts of who we are. Because if we did, if we really believed that divine light was under the surface in our own lives, in our own souls, and in one another, then we would be much lessly to judge when we run into the imperfections of other people. We would be much less likely to criticize, much less likely to disapprove, much less likely to condemn, much less likely to take the hurt that we sustain and turn that into a reactionary response. We would be much less likely to do that if we had deep within us the embedded understanding that each one of us carries around in a very earthen vessel the very likeness and the very image of God. If we had that down embedded deeply within us, we'd be much more likely to try and find something that is there. We would look more deeply. If we knew that the treasure was there, we would be looking much harder. We would be probing. We would be digging. We would be seeking. But it is human characteristic of all of us to tend to settle for the path of least resistance. Because we tend to make snap judgments when we have been hurt, and we tend to turn that snap judgment into a thought pattern about the other, that's easy. And so we do it, because it's easy. It's the easiest path, the path of least resistance. When we do that, however, we miss a higher calling that is available to us. This following Jesus thing that we do speaks of great truths and great words that are embedded in transformative processes that can change everything if we're paying attention. 
But if we do take the path of least resistance, and if we tend to settle for the surface truth, the truth that everybody around us thinks is true and reinforces in our minds, the truth that if a person uh, hurts us, then they deserve our judgment, then they deserve our condemnation, then we only see a sliver of reality as reality is, because we only see the, the most surface treatment of a person's life. We're living on the basis of just a sliver of truth just a sliver of the way things really are. And then we miss the real power of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It becomes a failure on our spiritual quest, a failure to see things clearly. Because one of the things that I, my kids were in towns over the weekend, and we talked a lot about life in general, we tend to do that. I take each one of them out for a coffee when I get the chance. And one of the things that I said again is, man, once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. Once you have an experience, it's a transformative experience. You can't unexperience it. It gets into you and it changes you. And that's the way the spiritual life works. Once you see the truth, the truth sets you free because you can't stop seeing what you have seen. So it's not about just finding out what the religion teaches and then giving mental assent to that. It's about the quest for interior experiences that change us and transform us. And failing that, we have to default to the path of least resistance. Failing having seen what we had not seen, we have to go back to the way everybody does things. And we settle for the human inclination to see someone's frailty, to see someone's weakness, and to weigh it far too heavily. It causes us to give more significance to people's shortcomings than they deserve. Our own failure to see causes us to see just a shadow of reality, a shadow that says people are defined by their imperfections, people are defined by their flaws. But what our ancient texts tell us is that no, that's not the defining nature of one another. What defines us is the very Spirit of God that was breathed into us, that turned clay into a living, breathing being the divine light that is inside every human being. Well, here's the deal. We sometimes fail in the pursuit of the spiritual practices that will give us eyes that see. We settle for the path of least resistance. And then to compound our short-sightedness, we often feel insightful, brilliant, when we see someone else's flaws. Here's the way it works being human. You and I, we want to be loved. Every other human being that wants, walks the earth wants to be loved. And knowing that we have flaws, we tend to do this thing. We tend to keep them hidden away. We don't lead with our weaknesses. We tend to create an image, a persona that we put out there for people to see that's going to give us the most likelihood to get us what we want. And we want to be loved. And so... We keep ourselves protected from the painfulness of rejection by not showing people the rejection-worthy parts of who we are. That's the way you live your life. It's the way that I live my life. It is part of being human. So then when someone fails in their attempt to keep the dark parts hidden away, 
When someone inadvertently lets their flaw be seen, somebody shows their mean side, for example, or somebody's insensitivity comes out, or somebody's selfishness comes out, or somebody's laziness, or their sloth, or their greed, or their envy, when it shows itself to the light of day, and when we become able to see it, especially when it's pointed at us and we sustain some hurt because it, it is a human tendency to then pounce. Aha, I have seen it now. Now I know you. Now, when we do the pouncing thing, we may not even change what our face looks like. We may not even change the words that we say. But inside, something has happened. I have seen the flaw. I have analyzed it. I've dissected it. I have figured this uh, person out. I have cracked the code. I have seen into the inner sanctum. I've got some inside knowledge. And now we begin to nod knowingly. I know who you are. And our insight gives us just the justification that we need to help us begin to feel good about ourselves because I may be a lot of things, but I'm not that. But in truth, our insights into the flaws of other human beings is the most base and most obvious kind of observation. It's not really a powerful insight at all. Every one of us has failures. Every one of us has shortcomings. And if you get to see somebody else's shortcoming, so stinking what? In fact, once we have seen that, we are now closer to blindness than we are to understanding. Because true insight is unavailable to those who don't pursue the spiritual practices. And so we have to settle for these lesser insights and call them something profound. But they are not. A truer truth is that each one of us carries around an incredible value inside of us. Because each one of us was fashioned in the very likeness of the divine. We don't even know what those words mean. We just have a sense that whatever the divine is, whatever the breath of God is, it is in you, it is in me, and it is in the difficult people. The truth is that each one of us has much more going on than the relatively obvious weaknesses that we work so hard to keep hidden from one another. As followers of Jesus, we believe that all God's people are precious. We believe that all people are made in the image of God. And as such, there is some dimension of God's divine life, God's divine goodness inside of every one of us. And I don't suppose there's any church this morning that's out there not saying this. I wouldn't imagine that any church would dispute the idea that we carry the breath of God. I mean, it's right there in the book. It says it. But the implications that accrue to people when they begin to believe it are transformative. Once you see that truth, you can't unsee it. It transforms the way that we look at others. It transforms what happens to to us when we encounter the hurtful, irritating nature of the other. But so often, we don't find the transformative power of truth and we only see the obvious. And the reason that happens is because of a shortcoming, a failure on our part to train our eyes to see and train our ears to hear. How often do you hear Jesus saying those words? 
We don't train our souls because the spiritual practices that do that training are demanding. Working the circle is difficult. Getting involved in meditation, getting involved in spiritual reading, getting too busy to open our lives to spiritual community, all those things are demanding. Stepping back from the noisiness that comprises the lives that we live in this city, in this culture, that's difficult. Stepping back from busyness, giving ourselves the space and the time to access the deeper truths. To do that is demanding. And consequently, we don't. Our spirituality falls back from the robust state that it could be. We tend to not spot the truth. We tend to not be transformed by it. And we tend to miss our ancient truth that you and I are treasures being cloaked in clay pots. We've heard the truth, but it doesn't get in us. It doesn't become our orienting reality. And so when we see the one that's angry, all we see is the anger. When we see the one that's greedy or lusty or apathetic or addicted, we tend to not see the treasure, we just see the clay pot. And it's simply an issue of not having trained our eyes to see, trained our ears to hear. Now, we usually don't go seek out the truth that's hidden behind the irritation because there's a deep part of us that doesn't really believe it's there. And we don't really believe it's there because we don't really believe it about ourselves. We don't believe that we ourselves carry around the divine light and we're over here working our tails off trying to do right and be good and we're trying to compensate for this. We've developed a whole ego as self strategy to make ourselves feel okay about this thing and we're working over here trying to live this life and so of course we don't see the divine light in the other. We don't think it's there to find within ourselves. So we have our ancient texts to point us in a way that we would not intuitively tend to go. We have our tradition to point us in a direction that we would tend not to intuitively go. And what those ancient texts and what the testimony of those who have gone before us tell us is this, that the liar and the cheat and the philanderer that you're going to run into in your life the insecure person who puffs himself or herself up at your expense so that they can feel better about themselves, the fearful person who is always scrabbling for money and cheats you on the check after dinner, the selfish person who never gives but always takes, the self-absorbed person who never sees beyond their interest, what our tradition tells us is that person has a treasure inside that might be worth an investment. So we've been given a treasure map. Our tradition comes and says, here is where you find the treasure. You go look here. Now what you get, when you look there, it's going to be a hidden treasure. It's hidden behind all of this irritation. But there, beneath the shortcomings, there's a treasure. There, beneath the sin, there is a treasure. There is a true reality of God image behind there, and it can be found, and it can be drawn forth. 
And that is the role of those who follow Jesus, to access the treasure map, to go to where the treasure can be found, and to call it out from behind its cleverly hidden facade. It is to us to look past the shallow and to look past the temporary that we call sinfulness or we call failure or we call shortcoming and to draw forth the true reality that is invested in each one of us. And the ability to do that, the eyes that see and the ears that hear, we just mentioned a moment ago, this is why we walk the spiritual path. This is why we participate in the ancient practices. Because our disciplines have been designed for centuries to help us strengthen our own spirituality. This is why we meditate. This is why we seek after truth that will open our eyes. This is why we do spiritual reading. This is why we talk about our souls one with another. This is why we turn off the electronics from time to time in order to quiet ourselves and to be still. This is why we follow the ancient ways. This is why we work the circle. Because we train ourselves to see what can't be unseen once you've seen it. And thus to be more tolerant of one another's imperfections. We train ourselves to see what we would have missed before. And that is that there is inside one another something that we might not have known was there. And in the training, we are opening ourselves to a deeper dimension of life. We are opening ourselves to a capacity to access a truth that is a deeper truth. And that changes everything. It changes how we live our days. It changes what goes on in our homes. It changes how we fight with our spouse. It changes how we deal with the irritating, difficult people in our lives. Now, I always have to be cautious because, as we said, I think last week or the week before, we'll be talking to an Enneagram 8 person and we'll be talking to an Enneagram 6 person at any time given a lesson. And that means one person's going to hear, like, I should be doing better. Another person thinks I should be just making sure everybody else does better. And so all those people are sitting, all those people are listening. And so <clears throat> a complementary truth to what I'm saying right now was kind of summarized in a book that came out, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, a lot of people have read it, so you might have run into it or at least know what it says. The title of the book was Women Who Love Too Much. And it kind of talked about a codependent way of uh, living life together. It may have even started the use of that term. I'm not sure how it happened. But it talks about something that masquerades as love. But it's in fact fear. What masquerades as love is doing what is good for the other person. How loving does that seem? But it is, in fact, an unconscious strategy that says, if I will make everyone happy, then I will be safe. So it's true that some of us tend to err on the side of one or the other. And it is true that we would tend to err when it comes to loving the difficult person on a fear-driven compliance. But that's why these ancient practices are so important to us. Because they teach us the art of discernment. Sometimes the most loving thing to do would be to challenge someone, to confront someone, to go at them directly. Sometimes that's the most loving thing to do. Sometimes the most loving thing to do with a difficult person is to tolerate and to absorb, to take it on the chin and to give them time in order to come to understanding what is light and life. And how in the world are you going to know which one is right at any given time? 
You're not. You can't sit here and listen to a lesson to determine, ah, this is when I should do this, and this is when I should do that. You can't figure it out in advance. What you can do is work the circle. And when you work the circle, you become more attuned to the interior wisdom that is in each one of us because the Spirit of God is within each one of us. And you can become more attuned to accessing that wisdom that comes from within and know when you should do this and when you should do that. When it's time to be challenging, when it's time to be gracious. But either way, by working the circle, by giving ourselves eyes that see and ears that hear, we don't have to shrink back from difficult people. We don't have to become enmeshed in our own identity that dominates the difficult people or absorbs the difficult people. We don't have to do either one of those habitual brain habit patterns that we picked up from the time we were very young. We don't have to become shallow or angry, selfish or shrill. We don't have to shrink back from justice and truth. The Spirit of God within us capacitates us to live at a dimension higher than we most frequently devolve to. We can become patient. And when we respond, it's not out of impatience. It's not out of anger. It is out of the right thing to do. We can have eyes that see beyond the irritating aspects of the person so that our response is not a reactionary response to that, but our response is a way to move and to draw forth the deeper. Expansive life rooted in an expansive truth that draws from the interior life and the interior light that is within each one that we meet. Okay, one more quick point before we read the letter again. Let me start that with a cartoon. If you can't read the text, here's what it says. As a woman is looking for a card, she says, Do you have a card that stops short of saying I'm sorry, yet vaguely hints at some wrongdoing? <laughs> I thought that was funny. Some words of caution. <clears throat> for those of us who grew up in church, for those who grew up around religious language, for those of us who grew up around the religious life, it is a common thing for us who grew up in that context to tend to devolve into a very insidious form of dealing poorly with difficult people. Because I sometimes do and I sometimes see people put a very religious garb over a very harsh judgment of other people. It's an honest mistake, and because uh, it's such a common and honest mistake, our ancient tel texts tell us to be careful at it. But they're not all that helpful, because our ancient texts say, do not judge anyone else. And then our ancient texts turn around and say, now when you judge other people, judge them wisely. <laughs> what the hell? Come on! <laughs> How are we supposed to do this right? But self-righteousness is a pretty strong draw to our souls because what it does for us, it allows us to shut off having to think more deeply about our own interior blind spots. So you see it happen and you know how off-putting it is. When you see self-righteousness going on, someone will frame some of their criticism of the other person in religious terms. 
So they'll have some kind of a relatively harsh rejection of another person. They'll have some form of judgmentalism of another person, and they'll put it in religious terminology. One of the ones you'll hear more commonly is, well, you just got to love the sinner but hate the sin. Now, there's a lot of people out there for whom that's, uh, you know, uh, working for them. I just have never seen how you can do that. How do you love the sinner and hate the sin? Because the sinner's doing the sin. So, I mean, it's very difficult to disperse, to distinguish between the two, or it'll take the form of uh, a phrase like, taking a stand for righteousness. You might hear that one, or one of my favorites I use with my wife all the time is a righteous indignation. My indignation right here, I'm pissed at you, but I'm righteous. <laughs> Or one that I've heard more recently on a regular frequent basis is talking about another person's safety. Because once we determine that that person is not safe, then I am now justified in not thinking through my engagements with them. And maybe it's possible to draw that kind of fine line. I don't know. But when I hear the people using phrases like that, when I hear people do that, when I use that phrase, any one of those phrases myself, it usually stinks. It usually stinks because it's a perfumed mask over some really harsh judgment of another person. It's usually a relatively thin veneer put over a hurt response. It's usually a veneer put over uh, a reactionary response that's produced by my own fear or my own reaction or my own woundedness or my own hurt. What's usually happening is I've created this strategy for survival in a very dangerous world we call it ego as self all the time. I've latched on to whatever it is that I happen to be good at and I make that the persona that I create and somewhere along the way this false version of self gets poked by some other person who's also pursuing their own ego as strategy self and then I hurt. And when I hurt the first thing that happens is a reactionary response and it is so much more convenient if I can say that person is sinful. It's so much easier if I can say that person is doing wrong. It's so much easier if I can stand on the side of God and if I can stand on the side of truth and I can stand on the side of righteousness and I can say I am now safe from that person. Because if I do that, here's what I don't have to do. I don't have to say, why am I reacting the way that I'm reacting? I use this illustration when I'm talking to people who've been hurt all the time. If a toddler comes up to you and says that you're stupid, you don't give it a second thought. But if a professor comes and says that you're stupid, then you have a strong reaction. Because we don't think a toddler has the standing to make a judgment on our stupidity or not stupidity, but we do think a professor does. So if someone comes along and pokes us, what we've said is they have the standing, they have the capacity to then cast judgment on me, which means part of me kind of believes that. Kind of be, part of me kind of believes what's going on inside of me. But that little thought experiment between the difference between a toddler and a professor, what it tells us is that that has a lot more to do with what's going on inside of me than it does the, the intrinsic value of the words that's being spoken by the person. Because I assign a meaning to this person, and therefore I assign a meaning to that person, and therefore I either respond or I do not respond. So any time that we go and say, that person is bad, that person is wrong, that person is evil, that person has done that. We have just shut down one of the primary ways in which we grow. We grow when we look at our own reaction. Why does that person upset me? 
Why is that person getting under my skin? I'll have 30 different people, all of who will say stupid things. These three, man, they get under my skin. They get my goat. That tells me more about me than it does about the intrinsic badness of the people out there. So, self-righteousness, it's off-putting. Don't do it. It stinks. But that's not the reason not to do it. The reason not to do it is it shuts down a process by which we grow. It shuts down the process by which we come to self-awareness and the capacity for self-disclosure. It shuts down the process by which we become alert to the false self that is going on inside of me. So when the irritating person comes along, it has been an invitation, come grow. And anytime we say, sinful person, wrong person, stupid person, that person is whatever category I put them in, as soon as we do that, we stop doing this. And when we stop doing this, we stop growing. So, people hurt us. It's true. And I don't want to minimize the pain because I've probably heard more hurtful stories than most because of what I get to do in my life each day. However, it is bad for our souls to simply cast the herder into a category that we can be safe and insulated from, it feels better, it protects us, but it stops the growth process. It stops us from going in and finding the truth and the light and the life that is within us. So here's what the ancient wisdom tells us. Find the preciousness in people. It's there. Look past the exterior veneer, the facade. Seek it and you will find it. Have the kind of vision that Jesus had that, he, that tainted his reputation because he hung around with people that everyone else could say, oh, sinner. But he went and said, ah, the light and the life of God. Have that kind of life, have that kind of quest, have that kind of pursuit. And when the irritating people hurt you, when the hurtful people hurt you, take that energy Focus it toward interior self-awareness. Don't walk in the smug certitude that says, bad person, sinner person, stupid person, unqualified person. Instead, let these opportunities by sinful people, sure they are, but let it become an opportunity by which we awaken to the divine life and the journey within ourselves. Like Jesus, believe that the preciousness is in there, be able to draw light and life out from others, draw from the most unsavory and irritating people the interior truth, learn to do it even when our hearts have been stung by people's imperfections. So I want to read the letter again, and then we'll have a minute of quiet, then I'll pray, and then we'll take the offering, and then I'll ask you what you're thinking. Only imperfection is intolerant of imperfection. It seems to me that you need to be a little more big-hearted about the imperfection of other people. I know you can't help but see these imperfections when they come right before your eyes, and neither can you prevent involuntary opinions about others from popping into your mind. Nobody will deny that the imperfections of others often cause a lot of inconvenience, but it will be enough if you're willing to be patient with imperfections, 
whether they be serious or not so serious, do not allow yourself to turn away from people because of their imperfections. If there is one mark of perfection, it is simply that it can tolerate the imperfections of others. It is able to adjust. Sometimes we find the most surprising faults in otherwise good people, but we must not be surprised. It is best to let these faults alone. Let God deal with them. If we deal with them, we'll end up pulling up the wheat with the tares. I have found that God leaves, even in the most spiritual person, certain weaknesses which seem to be entirely out of place. This is true of all of us, and all of us need to be quick to recognize our own perfection, letting God deal with them. As for you, labor to be patient with the weakness of other people. You know from experience how bitterly it hurts to be corrected, so work hard to make it less bitter for others. I am not saying that you correct other people too much. That is not your problem. Your problem is that you become cool when you discover the faults in other people. And you tend to quit associating with them. So you need to deal with that problem. Now after all that, I ask you more than ever to not spare me if I need correction. Even if you mention a fault which isn't really there, there will be no harm done. If I find that your correction wounds me, then my irritability simply shows that you have touched a sore spot in my life. But if there is no irritability and resentment, then at least you have done me the excellent kindness of testing my ability to be humble and in keeping me accustomed to reproof. Since I occupy a position of responsibility in the church, I think I am more responsible to be humble even than others are. God demands that I be dead to everything, so I need this, just as you do. And I trust that our mutual need will be the means of cementing rather than weakening our attachment in the Lord. Go ahead and take a deep breath in. Go ahead and close your eyes. Begin to reflect on the people that comprise your days. Those in your family that you just spent the holiday with, perhaps. Those that you work with those you find an irritant. And allow the ancient wisdom to seep deeply within. These moments are now yours. So, Lord, may our spiritual practices yield fruit. And on this particular issue, may it bear fruit in the way that we see the difficult people and the way that we treat them. And may the life of the Spirit of God that so radiated in Jesus, may it also radiate in us. The same spirit in Jesus that indwells us, may it come forth and manifest his grace and mercy and justice and courage and tolerance and kindness and wisdom and discernment. 
May that be so within us, Lord, and may that flow through us. In Jesus' name, amen.